Well, if you take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49, and we are, we might actually be done a little early this evening um, as we're continuing our look at the patriarchs as kings in our discussion of the kingly office. And particularly, we are discussing Jacob. And as we mentioned last week, we sort of went through the major aspects of Jacob's life and looked at the blessings that he received um, and how now, as we come to where we are this week, we're now looking at the blessing that Jacob is giving to his sons. So just to quickly review what we looked at last week, again, after Jacob and his sons had settled in Egypt, he calls them to himself to bless them. And each son, or what was going to become a tribe of Israel, receives specific blessings spoken over them. And this is the, really the first, the majority of Genesis 49 are these blessings. And just to quickly review what those blessings were to those sons, there was um, the blessing given to Reuben, who's the firstborn son. He's a strong, a powerful man, but he has his preeminence stripped from him because of the sinful activities he did, and he went in and went to his uh, father's bed and lay with uh, his stepmother. We see that Simeon and Levi are stripped from having specific place among the people of God because they were involved in a deceptive and violent action uh, against um, a whole group of people uh, that were they went through. And just like Jacob was a heel snatcher and a deceiver, so... They acted that way, and then particularly we noted the violence that they had done. And again, one of the things that we noted that was different about the way in which mankind uh, exercised that dominion in the, uh, uh, on the earth was that violence was no longer the commonplace way. After the, before the flood, that's what happened. There was violence, and people would fight against each other, and it was almost thought that violence was a good thing. Now... After the flood, I'm sure there was violence, but it wasn't the, the tenor of everything that was going on. But we see that going back here, even among God's own people, even among Simeon and Levi. We see that Zebulun is blessed with maritime blessings. Issachar is spoken of as having strength, but being foolish. Dan is blessed with having the ability of judgment among Israel. Gad will be blessed with military victory. Asher is blessed with agricultural blessings. Joseph is blessed not as a son, but he is equated with the patriarchs. And Benjamin will be a military power. And if I, while we're in Genesis 49, I didn't really hit on this at all last week, but let's just go ahead and read the blessing that Jacob gives to Joseph's sons in Genesis 48. So again, we said that Joseph is blessed more like a patriarch. And that patriarchal blessing, then his sons are elevated to the level of uh, tribes of Israel. So Genesis 48, we'll begin our reading in verse 8 there. When Israel, or Jacob, saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. 
Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand and toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left, head, his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on. And the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will, will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Then he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Again, what we see interesting here is, is that, um, and, and there's, there's sort of this interesting story, you know, uh, Israel or Jacob is old, his eyesight is dim, and so it, it sort of intimates that, it, that when Joseph brings the sons before him, he doesn't really see or know what's going on, but the reality is that Jacob absolutely knows what he's doing, and he is, he is doing the very thing that we see God doing over and over again, and that is that he turns back the way of man to accomplish his purposes. The firstborn, the eldest, was the one who was often to receive the blessing. And I mean, we see that even with Jacob's life himself, he was not the firstborn. He was the secondborn. Even though he was trying to pull Esau back, nonetheless, he was the one who was born second. Yet, he receives the blessing. And so even in the, the blessing given to Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons, we see this recognition that God's ways are not going to go according to man's ways. So we saw all those blessings to all those tribes, but there's one tribe that we haven't talked about. And who is that tribe? It's the tribe of Judah. And what we see when J Jacob goes to bless Judah, we see a kingly blessing. So look with me, Genesis 49, and we'll read reading verses 8 through 12 this evening. And that will be the focus of our discussion this evening. Genesis 49, verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who 
dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Let's seek God's presence in prayer this evening. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for um, how you have provided for us in Christ a perfect prophet, priest, and king. And Lord, this evening as we look at this blessing that Jacob gave to Judah, Father, may we find and recognize that its fullest fulfillment is found in Christ, the one who comes to be the scepter of Judah, to be the ruler, to be the one who has dominion over all nations and tribes and kingdoms. And Father, may we live lives in submission to the kingship of Christ in all things. Father, work in our midst through your spirit this evening. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. So, Jacob's blessing on Judah is unique. Now, what we often find with all the other blessings that we see given to the other tribes of Israel, the, his other sons, is they are fulfilled throughout the history of Israel. And we can go back, we could look through um, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. We could look through the, the book of Judges and we can see the different ways in which um, Jacob's blessing on these other tribes or these other sons is fulfilled. But Judah has a unique blessing from Jacob. Judah particularly is one who was blessed with the kingly role. And so when Jacob speaks here, he's not just speaking a blessing, he's speaking of a prophecy. He's prophetically declaring how this role of prophet, priest, and king will be fulfilled in someone who will come from Judah. Now notice what he says about Judah. Verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. There is going to be an understanding that Judah is going to be the leader of his brothers. Now, we see this in the fact that when a king comes, the king comes from what tribe? Once there's a king brought up among Israel, comes from the tribe of Judah. And this king is going to rule over all the tribes of Israel. That someone from Judah will lead all the other tribes of Israel. Sorry about that. There we go. These cords, you just touch them just the wrong way and they, they go crazy. Judah is also going to be someone who exercises dominion and subdues his enemies. Look again at verse 8. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. So this idea of him having his hand on the neck of his enemies, that speaks of that subduing power. Now again, remember, we go all the way back to Genesis 1, 
when God created mankind and he set them in the garden, he gave them the earth, he told them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. And so this idea of having his hand on the neck of his enemies has this idea of subjugation, of having military victory over all of his enemies. He speaks of how Judah will be the tribe of what? The lion. We see this in verse 9. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The concept here is that as Judah, as a lion, is a ravenous beast that goes and, 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 and has victory over its prey. It's the one that comes and, and subdues. I mean, if you've ever watched a documentary about a lion killing a wildebeest or whatever, you know, it's, it's not a pretty sight. It's, it's visceral. It's violent. And what he's saying here about Judah, particularly from Judah, that he will be this lion that will come and will, will, will come down stooping like a lion, pouncing on his enemies. In Hosea chapter 4, or Hosea chapter 5, verse 14, God speaks about how he will be a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. And he speaks of how in doing this, how is he going to be like this? He'll be like and will tear and go away. He will carry off and no one shall rescue. That this idea, this concept of this, this lion crouching is one of, of unmistakable and irreversible destruction. That's the type of king that Judah will have that will come from them. That is the type of rule that will have. It will be a rule that will be unequaled, unrivaled, and will bring absolute victory. And then we see more and very specifically here and explicitly Jacob speaking of the royal scepter. Look in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. What we find is that Judah will own the royal scepter until there is one who will come to Judah who, to whom the scepter ultimately belongs. Now, where am I getting that? Well, if you look in verse 10, all right, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. There is a, um, this is a difficult passage to translate when we look at the original Hebrew. And based upon what they call a revocalization, it can mean one thing or it can mean something else. If you look at it one way, it could be this idea of until tribute comes to him. Other ways, we'll talk about how, um, how he, until Shiloh comes. That's, you'll see that in other different translations. The, the tribute coming to him, I think, the, I think actually the NIV captures the best way of understanding this passage in, in, in Genesis 49.10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come. 
and the obedience of the nations shall be his. In other words, this one who will come that owns the scepter will come from Judah. Now, who is this that will come to Judah who owns the scepter of the royal house of Judah? Who is that? It's Christ. This speaks prophetically of the coming Messiah. Now, notice what it says about him. He is going to be the one who will rule and exercise dominion as king. And notice that this dominion is not just over Judah. And it's not even just over Israel. The prophecy that Jacob is speaking of here is a prophecy that is much bigger than the nation of Israel. Notice what he says. To him, to this one who comes, that's another reason why I think that is the better translation because he refers to this person, this one who comes, who owns the ruler's staff, to him shall be the obedience of not Judah, not Israel, but of who? The peoples. And the term that's used there is a reference to all the nations. That every nation will come and will have power or will come and have obedience to Jesus Christ. That He comes and brings about full subjugation and obedience of every single nation. Jacob is speaking of things not just referring to God's plan for Israel, but ultimately he is looking at the promise that God made to Abraham that in his seed, all the what of the earth will be blessed. All the nations, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And Jacob is giving us a hint into what that blessing looks like. That blessing looks like submission to the King of kings and Lord of lords. What is this kingdom going to be like? Well, verse 11 and verse 12, we have some, some descriptions of what this is going to be like. And it's, it's given in a very agrarian context. So these are agricultural terms that he's going to to speak of. And in particular, they might be a little lost lost on some of us because I don't know many of us here own vineyards. Does anyone here own vineyards? All right. So there's something to be said here because what he's speaking of is how, how, how much prosperity is going to be in the kingdom of Christ. It's going to have and possess splendor unlike any kingdom that has ever existed. How do we see this? Well, first of all, he says in verse 11, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Now, if you're riding your horse or you're riding your donkey through the vineyard, which I know you guys do on Tuesdays, right? That's when everyone goes out on their donkey in the vineyard, right? All right when, when you do that and, or you have a horse, you generally tie it up to something that's not going to damage the crops. All right, so essentially, if you were riding through there, there would be a post separate from the vines, separate from the grapevines that you would tie your horse up to. Because if your horse got spooked, if he started to buck, it's possibility that he would break the vine and ruin or damage some of the fruit. So well, the implication here then is that 
There's no need to even worry about that, that you can tie your horse or your donkey up to the vine, and it doesn't matter if they ruin the vine or ruin the fruit because there's so much of it that the kingdom that is going to come through Judah, through someone that comes to Judah, it will be a kingdom of absolute and complete fulfillment and satisfaction. There will be nothing lacking in that kingdom. So commonplace will be the fruit of the vine. So commonplace will be wine in those days that it will be like water. People will wash their garments, not in water, but what do they wash them in? In wine. That the that essentially what will happen is everyone's vestures, everyone's clothing will be stained in the blood of grapes. Now what's interesting there about that is the color purple also has throughout Scripture a particular emphasis on it. It is the royal color. So there, there is possibly, and I don't want to get too carried away with this idea, but there's a possibly even the idea that those who are in this kingdom are considered rulers themselves, are considered royal. And of course, we know that because the kingdom that Christ creates is a kingdom of priests and kings, that those who are in the kingdom of Christ will one day rule with him. And then he speaks of how his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Essentially, the idea here is that the eyes will be bloodshot red from the profuse consumption of wine and the teeth will be stained white from all the milk they will be drinking. These are two, in, in, particularly in biblical times, these were two very um, sought after, very valuable aspects of the agrarian society wine and milk in fact if you think about when israel it sends the spies into canaan to spy out the land what do they talk about it is a a land flowing rich with milk and honey and that the clusters of grapes are so big that two men have to carry them i mean if you think about it there's direct connections to what jacob is prophesying here about this kingdom Derek Kidner, who is an Old Testament scholar, he says this about this description. This speaks of exuberant, intoxicating abundance. It is the golden age of the coming one. There is opulence from the king who will come to Judah that is described here untold opulence and this opulence exists because the king has come as king jesus reigns his kingdom is a kingdom that brings nothing but blessing that is the message that jacob is getting across to judah that he is a king who blesses not just Israel, not just Judah, but that blessing comes to the entire world. It is the fulfillment of the message to Abraham that in his seed, all nations of the earth will be blessed. 
that there is great blessing found from having Jesus as king. Of course, Jesus is the one who fulfills Jacob's blessing. Jesus is the one who provides this blessing. And it began when the resurrected Christ sat down at the Father's right hand. What I'm going to show you today and and discuss with you to some extent is what we call the doctrine of the inaugurated kingdom. I believe in what's called an already not yet. Has this been fulfilled yet? Well, somewhat in a spiritual reality, but we look forward to a day when there will be a physical reality when Christ rules and reigns on this earth for a thousand years. But yet today, we get to enjoy blessing from King Jesus. We get that hope today. And we see that in Acts 2, 32 through 36. Peter preaching, speaking of what Christ has done. Jesus, God, has raised up And of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So the whole point of what He's saying is, how does this blessing find itself first and foremost expressed? Christ pours the Spirit out on Pentecost. There is a new kingdom that has now come into place. And then notice what he says. He points to David. David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord, Yahweh, says to my king, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then this is the point that Peter makes. Let all the house of Israel know what? For certain that God has made him Jesus of Nazareth, both Lord or King and Savior or Messiah, Christ. This Jesus, and then here's the cutting statement that he makes. What did they do with this Jesus? This Jesus whom you crucified. When we understand and stand back in the, in the stream of prophecy that leads up to what Peter is saying. And the, the people of Israel who are there at Pentecost and hear this message, it says later on after they say this that they are cut to the heart. They are terrified. Because how does Jacob describe how Christ treats his enemies? He puts his hand on their necks. He conquers anyone who opposes them. And what has Israel done? They killed the Lord of glory. They crucified Him. And yet this prophecy that Jacob is making here is so certain. God is so faithful to His promises that even death cannot hold back the fulfillment of what He promised to Abraham. And so Christ has this begun as He is raised to the Father and sits down at the right hand of the Father in heaven that David himself sees and speaks of that day that Christ will come and reign. We see this in Psalm 2. The heathens are raging. 
They're imagining vain things. They say we're going to cast off the Lord. We're going to cast off His anointed, breaking aside His chains. And what is God doing? The Lord is in the heavens and He is laughing. He will have them in derision. And then He speaks of there will be a day that on that day He has begotten Christ as His Son. You know what that day is? The Scriptures tell us explicitly in the New Testament that that day is when Jesus rose from the dead. Now for those of us who have bowed the knee to Christ, for those of us who have Him as our Lord and King, we look at the resurrection and it is a joyful thing. It is a thing to rejoice in. But for those who turn away from the kingship of Christ and rail against Him, the coming of Christ, the resurrection of Christ is not a hopeful thing. It is a fearful thing. Because He's described there as taking and dashing His enemies like a potter's vessel on the ground. And so the warning is be wise, O kings. Kiss the Son. Pay homage to the King of kings. Bow your knee before Him, lest He be angry with you and you perish in the way. It is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that the Father has demonstrated that the scepter has come to Judah because Christ, the one to whom that scepter belongs, came. We also see this in the fact that there is no authority on heaven, in heaven or in earth, above the earth or under the earth, that can rival Christ's kingdom. We know in Colossians chapter 2, verses 15, Paul speaks of how Christ disarmed the rulers. And authorities, and he put them to open shame by what? Triumphing over them. This is that subjugation. This is that power of dominion being seen through what Christ has done. And today he exercises dominion over all the nations by not suggesting that they repent, but by commanding them. To repent. Look at what he says in look at what's said in Acts 17, 30 through 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he what? Commands. That is the statement made from somebody who has to be in the position of authority to make it. He commands, and then does he command just Judah? Does he command just Israel? He commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because there's a day coming. A day that has been fixed by God's eternal decree in which Christ, who is commanding everyone everywhere to repent, will judge the world in righteousness. I'm sorry, the the Father will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by what? Raising Him from the dead. And so this dominion that is exercised is seen in what 
God commands of all men everywhere. Listen, why can Christ command that? Because He's King. I mean, here's the stark reality of what this should mean to us today, both if we are apart from Christ and those of us who are in Christ. If we are apart from Christ, if you're hearing this sermon and you've never turned to Christ, this is a call to tell you that you cannot resist the kingdom of Christ. King Jesus will win. There's nothing that can stop that. And so there is a command for you. How do you avoid that day when He judges you in righteousness and you know you fall short of that righteousness? How do you avoid that? Fall on your knees and repent. Turn from the kingdom of darkness that you're currently walking in and seek the kingdom of, the, of His glorious Son. And then... For those of us who do know Christ, think of what it means for us to fall back into sin. We are citizens of the kingdom of His Son. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Jesus is our Lord. He's our King. And when we sin, we commit treason against the King of Kings. This is a warning for us as believers to recognize that if Christ is King, then He must rule over all that we are. Are we allowed to keep one foot in the kingdom of darkness while the rest of us is in the kingdom of light? No. This is convicting. Every errant thought, every sinful action and deed is an act of betrayal to our King. And so the command to repent is not just a command given to those who are without Christ, but it is a command given to those who know Him that that is the way of our lives, that we constantly turn from sinful actions and we seek to live with our knees bowed before the King of Kings. What is this kingdom that Christ creates? It is a kingdom of priestly kings. And this is the glory of what Jesus does. Revelation 5, 5. There is the scroll that's brought before. Who is worthy to open the scroll? And there is no answer. There's a pause in heaven. And John, who has been taken up there, weeps. And then one of the elders, those standing around the throne of God, they say to him, weep no more. Why? The lion of the tribe of Judah. Where does that come from? Jacob. Speaking this prophecy over Judah. The root of David. What has he done? Conquered, subdued, brought dominion. And now he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That scroll is the very kingdom of God. There is only one person who has the right to that scroll, and it is Christ who has conquered. 
And so this glorious chorus in heaven sings the new song saying, Worthy are you, the Lamb that was standing as though it was slain, to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? You were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall what? Reign on the earth. This is what Christ fulfills in becoming the great King of kings and Lord of lords. This is what it means to follow Christ. Look back with me in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until him to whom it belongs comes. And then what is the result of King Jesus coming The peoples will what? Obey Him. They will obey Him. That again cuts deep to our hearts to show us the need that if we are going to be in the kingdom, we must obey the King. And so today, the question is, is it true then that this description of opulence, is that a reality we have today? Now again, none of us have vineyards. I don't think, I don't, I don't know if any of you have donkeys or horses. But the reality is, is that the opulence of the kingdom of Christ is something that we get to enjoy today as well. This kingdom reality continues as we live under the lordship of King Jesus We enjoy every blessing that exists in His heavenly reign. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. Notice, not will bless us. Has blessed us in Christ, in our King, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You realize that the opulence that Jacob is speaking of here in spiritual realities we have today, God doesn't hold back any of the blessings of Christ to us. We own them now. As he goes on to say in verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians 1, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the Spirit. And who is the Spirit? He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. You realize that we get to experience every day the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and that is itself just a down payment of the blessings that await us in Christ. And so we look forward 
to that day that is coming when Jacob's prophecy will be literally fulfilled. As Jesus takes the throne of David on earth and we reign with him. Remember what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 9? This is a passage we usually think of around Christmas time. The name of Christ will be Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the Ruler of Peace. And notice what Isaiah says, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal or the passion of the Lord of hosts will do this. That is what King Jesus brings. You know, there has not been one man who has been a ruler or woman, who has ruled on this earth, whose kingdom has been established with perfect justice and righteousness. Not one. Even the best of rulers in this world fail. Even the best. Pick your favorite politician, your favorite president, your favorite governor. Guess what? They messed up. They let people down. And their leading and failures cause all sorts of suffering and difficulty. But not so with King Jesus. There's going to be a day where He will establish the throne of David forever and He will reign there with justice and with righteousness on the earth physically. And we see that fulfillment in Revelation 20. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will what? Reign with Him a thousand years. What a glorious time that will be when Christ will be on this earth ruling and reigning. But yet... For those of us who are in Him, for those of us who have bowed the knee, who have come with obedience before Him, who have kissed the Son, who have repented from the kingdom of darkness, you realize that this is a present spiritual reality for you. Jesus is ruling and reigning today in perfection. So what does that mean then about your everyday life here on the earth? God is Perfectly working in every circumstance of your life. Perfectly working in every circumstance of your life. There's nothing that happens that's accidental. There is no determination or no decree of Christ that lacks righteousness. Now, we may not see that all the time. I'll be honest. Three years ago, I I didn't see how it was a good thing that Christ would decree that COVID would come around. Didn't seem like a good thing. 
But I know that my God, I know that my King, I know that my Christ is always good. His reign is perfect. And He's reigning today for us. So my responsibility is to obey Him. To not be subdued with His hand upon my neck, but to willingly bow the knee to Him. So, Jacob makes this prophecy. So much here that brings hope, but all of it points to Jesus Christ. What's remarkable about what we see here is that after this prophecy, God continues to send prophecy after prophecy. And we're going to see this even with David and the promises he makes to David. God also sing, sends king after king. And you know what? Every single time, what do we find? Every single king of Israel fails in some regard. Even David, the one who was a king after God's own heart, does unspeakable evil. What this shows us is that man's failures cannot stop God's plan. And that even death could not hold back the coming of King Jesus. This is where we find great hope. He is today King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for the truth we find in it. And we thank You, Father, for King Jesus. Father, thank You that He is King of kings and Lord of lords and that He has made an open spectacle of every other authority by triumphing over them in His resurrection. Father, may we rejoice in that kingdom and may we respond by seeking out a life of repentance and obedience to You. Thank You, Father, for the righteous reign of Christ. Take these truths, apply them to our hearts and lives today. We pray all this in Christ's name, pleading His blood. Amen. Well, just again, another reminder, we will not have the Sunday evening service next week. Uh, Rita and I will be out of town. Appreciate your prayers for us as we travel down to Texas this week. Uh, and Look forward to rejoicing with um, those that were uh, being able to be a part of their wedding. And uh, we will see you again in two weeks, Lord willing, um, to uh, pick up where we left off here this evening. Thanks again for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.